And I think that's something that most people don't know is that but for the Crime Victims' Rights Act and the Crime Victims' Rights Act case that Brad and Paul Cassell have been prosecuting for over 10 years now, Jeffrey Epstein would not have been brought to justice. In fact, I think you could conservatively say he has victimized at least a thousand uh, young young children and, and young women. How, you know, his persona has eclipsed the, the, the nuance and the importance of the case. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice sought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm joined today by two incredibly special attorneys and NCBBA members, Brad Edwards and Brittany Henderson of Edwards Plottinger. They are here today to talk with me about their fight for justice for the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. Now, Epstein's outlandish life and death have taken up hundreds of hours of airtime on the news. His actions are well documented and they are the subjects of books, documentaries, interviews, and podcasts, and everything in between. But we're here today to talk with Brad and Brittany, who are really credited with finally bringing him to an account. Before we begin, I wanna make a distinction. We are here to talk about the tactics of the case and to learn more about the way in which his survivors, with Brad and Brittany's assistance, really took him down. Here at the National Center, we focus on crime victims' rights, and they played a huge role in this case, as did the Crime Victims' Rights Act. So our focus here is not on Jeff Epstein. It is on the amazing women who came forward to make sure that no one else would be harmed. So Brad, with that as a context, what does this narrative change mean to you? Well, I, I appreciate the fact that that is the focus, because to me, that's always been the focus. 
Um, you know, I started my career as a prosecutor and representing crime victims was what I really cared about. So when I left the state attorney's office, primarily because I couldn't stick around to see what happened to the crime victims and make sure that uh, they received the type of help that they needed. When I opened up my own firm and started only representing crime victims, uh, my focus has been that and that alone, never on the perpetrator. You know, so uh, it's funny that this case, you know, I think I've been at it since 2008, so 13 years. And the focus has always been on the mystique uh, of Jeffrey Epstein. And so it's, it's, it's nice to finally be focusing where it should be. And, you know, crime victims rights had everything to do with this case. And I think that uh, we, you know, the, the main thing that I'm proud of that we did, and by we, I mean, not only myself, but other lawyers, and especially including Brittany, um, advanced crime victims rights through the case and especially through uh, through the, the Crime Victims Rights Act case that we filed against the government. And I think that's something that most people don't know is that but for the Crime Victims Rights Act and the Crime Victims Rights Act case that Brad and Paul Cassell have been prosecuting for over 10 years now, Jeffrey Epstein would not have been brought to justice. That case is what kept the story of Jeffrey Epstein alive when no one was really paying attention. And because that case existed, there became other cases, there became a criminal prosecution, an indictment of Epstein and now an indictment of Maxwell. And Brad, you mentioned all of the victims, and I think that's one of the most important things. So before we delve into specifically who you're representing, your victims and your tactics, let's look at a larger view. We keep saying Jeff Epstein's name, Jeff Epstein, it's become the Jeff Epstein case. How many victims do we know of that this man had? We know of at least 300, probably more, but I would estimate that there's more along the lines of a thousand victims. In fact, I think you could conservatively say he has victimized at least a thousand uh, young young children and and young women uh, through the last you know thirty years of his life, which was dedicated primarily to to sexually abusing females. And his power and his control and his wealth, even after his death have kept the majority of those victims from coming forward. Yeah, the, the vast majority, we know their names. We know their names. And we've known that they're victims or survivors of Jeffrey Epstein. And some of whom we've talked to, most we have not, uh, most have not come forward. With as many as have now come forward, most have still not. So start us from the beginning. How did you learn about this case? What brought you in? Yeah, so my, my mom, um, has been a paralegal since I was, well, before I was born. But um, growing up, she worked for an attorney named Jay Howell. Jay Howell was one of the founders, the original founders of the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. He was close with John Walsh and, and the victims' rights movement early, early, early on. And he would tell me about it when I was in junior high and high school. And, uh, and I always just wanted to be a trial lawyer. So, I went to law school and wanted to just, you know, try cases. And I talked to Jay. Hey, look, one day I want to do what you do. I want to represent crime victims, uh, but I want to get trial experience. And, and what should I do? And he said, start at the state attorney's office. So I did. And I realized, like, not only did I have this idea of lawyers growing up that, that uh, you know, in, watching Jay and seeing what he did, that, you know, that, that, that that the idea of being a lawyer is to stand up for what you believe in and, and to help people who can't help themselves. Uh, it, it, and when I was working as a prosecutor, I thought, you know, this is great work, but I'm proving crimes, putting somebody in jail, and then I lose track of the victims. So uh, I, I really want to get into that line of work. And um, 
opened up my own firm and Jay Howe called me one day and said, uh, there was an FBI agent who called him and said, uh, something is going on with the victims of this guy, this wealthy guy in Palm Beach named Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I don't know what, but I think that they're going to need civil attorneys. Now, this is in the spring of 2008. And just for time of reference, Jeffrey Epstein pleads guilty in June of 2008. This is this call that I get from Jay is probably May of 2008. And he says, um, there's a, there's a, a, a young woman named uh, Courtney Wilde, I think she was 20 at the time, and she just wants to talk to an attorney. You're closer than geographically than I am. Can you talk to her? And so Courtney came into my office pr primarily to tell me, um, hey, look, I'm one of the many victims who have been identified. I can tell you there's hundreds of us, uh, but who was abused by Jeffrey Epstein when we were 14, 15, 16 years old we've been cooperating in this very serious federal investigation. And yet, uh, the, the, uh, when I call the US Attorney's Office, I'm not getting an answer. When I call my uh, victim advocate for the, F for the FBI, I'm not getting an answer. I just want the FBI or the US Attorney's Office to talk to me and tell me what's going on. That was her gripe. It wasn't about filing a civil lawsuit. She had, that wasn't even on her radar. Like, get somebody to talk to me. Uh, so, so that was that was how I first became involved. I mean, I still remember like yesterday, Courtney coming into the office, which is funny because now we have such a long-standing relationship with Courtney. I mean, we text with her her kids' pictures this morning and everything else. But I mean, um, you know, this is when she was, to, in my eyes, a kid. Yeah, but you got to watch her grow up. I think that's like the most important part of our entire practice is that he's known Courtney for so long. Like many of our clients, and long after the case is over, you're still so involved in their lives. And I think that Courtney got through a lot in her life because of you and because of that meeting. Well, she started as, as a client and and sort of like my other child. And then now it's just like a really good friend that I'm super proud of and a, and a real big voice and advocate for, for crime victims. So. so usually we talk about this later, but we'll bring it in now because you've brought it up. How was she able to heal? How is she working through that? And how much of... The criminal justice system answered that versus what she had to do outside of the actual criminal justice system. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so when I first met her, yeah, I, I guess you always have to put everybody's life when you answer a question like this in context. So she she grew up in a you know a, a, as she would say a trailer park with a broke very broken family and, and drug addled uh, parents, but kind of. She's a strong person, strong-willed person, uh, very, uh, very pretty, very smart, but just kind of dealt a, a bad hand, right? And and she, uh, but she's succeeding against all odds. So, for instance, I mean, she's the cheerleading captain. She's in the band. She's a straight A student when she's going into eighth grade, and then she meets somebody who introduces her, to, who who essentially says. Um, hey, look, you want $300 to give a massage, here's where you need to go. And that begins a spiral that turns into all of the things we're associated with, you know, uh, self-medicating, drugs, so she turns to drugs at 13 years old, just to continue going to Jeffrey Epstein, and then, and then he influences her to bring others, and so she, then she gets so wrapped up, because Jeffrey Epstein's, you know, the, the mastery of what he did, was to cause every victim to become complicit at least, you know, at least make them believe that because now they're bringing others. So they're part of this maddening kind of sexually abusive machine. And 
she became so engulfed in it that it became her life. Now she was no longer this kid from the wrong side of the tracks that was on the right path. She was a, look, I'm a kid from the wrong side of the tracks who in her mind made it because now she's at this billionaire's mansion and she's working for him and she has employment. Her employment is now like a cog in the wheel of some sex trafficking scheme. And what she does for money is to be sexually abused. But he's so twisted and manipulated her mind that even as smart as she was, I mean, look, she's a child. So she had no chance against him, right? So um, by the time he's, by the time she gets 17 or 18 years old, she's too old for him. And she's she's come to really, I know you roll your eyes because you're like, wait, 17 years old, too old for him because this guy's 45 years old at the time. But that's just, you know, you know his type. You know, that's just, he has an age range, he has a, a, a type and she had become too old. And she's no longer able to provide for him, which, you know, two things she did, right? She showed up, she was sexually abused and then received money. And also she would bring him other girls. But when she was 15 years old, she'd be bringing him other 15 year olds. When she's 17 years old, now she's bringing him 18 year olds and that's, they're also too old. So now she's no good at that either. So he's breaking her down on a bunch of different levels. He gets in trouble. She's the first one to say, I, I recognize it's wrong what he did to me. Uh, he turned me into a life of drugs, which she was not about that beforehand. And I want to do something about it. And so she cooperates with the FBI investigation from day one. She's a very strong supporter of it. And she's not told about the non-prosecution agreement and the, you know, the immunity agreement, essentially, that he got that was behind all of the victim's facts. In fact, she's being persistent with the government and telling them, I want him prosecuted. And she's receiving letters in response saying, just be patient. It's a major federal investigation. Um, and, uh, and, and so then she just kind of runs out of, uh, runs out of patience with them. She calls them, she doesn't get response back. And then she comes to me. So when she comes to me, um, I would say she's broken. She, you know, she's, a, she's, she's broken in the sense that she feels defeated, but she's still strong and wants to do something about it. And then, you know, um, I think I was very naive when I took the case on thinking I could fix this in a second. I was a former prosecutor. I'm going to make a call. Everything's going to be fine. They're going to prosecute this guy, not realizing how far I was behind, you know, in, in what had gone on behind the scenes in the unequal justice that was being served. I had no idea. So um, I then watched her because of Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, I think, I think there's an approximate cause to all of the kind of bad stuff that happened with her um to Jeffrey Epstein is like first it was drugs and then it was like the system let her down and then it was like what do I believe in now you know I mean I'm in this place where I'm told justice is equal and like I went to the Supreme, US, uh, Supreme Court today and it says equal justice under law on the, on the on the front of it and you go really I mean that's I, not true yeah <laughs> come not on true. Man, come on we want to believe it is right and I was naive enough you know, to believe that was true at the time. It, this case also taught me it wasn't true. I went to law school believing it was true. I was a prosecutor believing it was true. I believed it was true. I prosecuted every single person. I didn't care what the person did, what that money they had, what the lawyer was. It was the treat people that exactly. Yeah, you made Courtney want to believe that that was true. The reason that this case is still going on is because Brad made Courtney believe that justice was real. Yeah. They could get justice. And then Courtney had a son. And Courtney's why, her why on why she survived, why she's still fighting, why she's here is because she had a son and then she had another son. And now she has two kids and she looks at her two little kids and she thinks, you know what? My boys are never going to be in a position that I was in. 
and then a position that Brad helped me get out of. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. that that's like the answer to your question is why and how did she survive? She survived because Brad gave her hope that there was justice, that justice should be real, that it could be real. And then she had two little humans right in front of her and it gave her a purpose for why they, why justice should be real. You know, and I think that that's the most important thing about what you Yeah, yeah but, but, but I had to watch her go through some really yeah. tough times when I would tell her, don't worry, we're going to straighten this whole thing out. But how'd you know that? How did you tell her that? How did you know that you're straighten the whole thing out? I, I'm not saying I was right, but I did. But you were. But, 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 but right, I was in the end. But I had to watch her go through the toughest times to the point that, you know, there were times where I had to call and check her into rehab. There were times where, you know, uh, she just wasn't living a very responsible life, which, is, which was tough to watch because you're seeing somebody, if you, if you talk to her, she's super smart. She's super mm -hmm. courageous. She's just somebody who you can recognize in two seconds. She can be somebody. Yeah. And to watch her self-destruct was like, it was heartbreaking. I mean, I've cried so many tears for Courtney Watts. But having a person, whether it's your lawyer or your therapist or your friend or your victim advocate, like somebody who believes in you to get you through that, I think that's why Courtney is where she is today. Yeah, but that's why we're lawyers, though. I mean, you, you believe, you see something, you believe in something. Well, that's why lawyers like you all exist, because not to slam prosecutors, you are a wonderful prosecutor. We have a lot of tremendous previous prosecutors that we work with every day, but they don't have the time all the time to work with their victims in the way that you were able to work with with Courtney. Um, well, and they don't represent the victims. The first thing that Brad ever taught me when I became a lawyer was prosecutors are a pinnacle part of our justice system, but they have a job to do, which is to represent the state or the government. They do not represent the victim and they may care about the victim, they may feel for the victim, but our job is so important, even though it's in a civil context, because we get to represent the victim and we get to give the victim a voice that they don't necessarily always have. And I think that's the most important lesson I've learned. Yeah, well, I also think that we've, at least locally, kind of advanced that concept within Broward County. We've made prosecutors cringe at times, but when we file a notice of appearance or we start attending depositions on behalf of victims, uh, it becomes it becomes a hairy situation, but it's always better for the prosecutors, especially if they work with us. And I'll tell you the one thing that we, did, I think it was probably been five years ago, which now we've replicated hundreds of times over and I've shared it with, with many of lawyers, is uh, we represented a, a, a group of victims, I won't go more in the story, but uh, the, the defense attorney thought that we were in the case, you know, just like most civil lawyers, like it, this is all about money. So try to make a, an example of that and said, uh, I said, look, we'll, uh, we'll give you our retainer agreement. And I had signed these cases up and I wrote out the retainer agreement, like, uh, I, I met with Brad Edwards, a former prosecutor who represents crime victims. He reviewed my case and has determined beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt that the person committed all these crimes against me. And so therefore he will represent me for free. I said, good, enter into evidence. Fine. Here it is. We're good. Yeah, we're good. So I just pass out to everybody now. Like, victims should deserve attorneys the same way criminal defendants do. That's and when they have attorneys, you see justice yeah. because someone is representing their rights and not just the rights of the state or of the federal government. Well, this amazing. case tells that. And that's the amazing thing in the United States right now is that people think they have a right to an attorney. The actual laws, they have a right to have an attorney present if you can afford one, if you're not charged with a crime. Yeah, yeah right. So I want to talk about the Crime Victims' Rights Act because it's a very nuanced portion of regulation. Not a lot of people know about it, what it is, or that it exists. And I do think a lot of times when people hear civil lawyers, they hear lawsuits. So what is the Crime Victims' Rights Act? 
how did it play a part in this case and how do you continue to use it for your clients? Okay, so after I met with Courtney Webb, her, her plea to me was just get the prosecutor to talk to her. Which, like I said, I thought it was gonna be a two minute conversation. So I talked to the prosecutor who would not tell me any information it was the oddest um, many conversations in a row uh, because I had just been a prosecutor. So it was, it was, it was very clear she wanted to tell me a lot. She couldn't tell me a lot. And uh, finally, she told me that there was going to be a plea in state court, which I was dealing with the Fed. So Fed court, feds, state, very different. But there was going to be a plea in state court for Jeffrey Epstein as to four victims who were not my clients. And I, con I confirmed with her that um, this had nothing to do with the, the federal case. He pled, and that's June 30th, 2008. And then I said, okay, so when's the federal indictment coming out? Uh, and uh, she was real cagey on that and said, essentially, you know, why don't you write a letter to our office? So uh, July 4th weekend, I write this letter to him saying, this is why you should prosecute him. I get nothing back. And um, when I realized they were, they were telling me misinformation at best and not responding to Courtney or any of her friends at the time, which were other victims, Thought, okay, I have to do something. So I had to start figuring out, you know, what avenues do I have to do something. So I read the Crime Victims Rights Act, which generally speaking is the rights that victims have in, in criminal courts, which are pretty basic. You know, it's like the right to be, be um, protected from the defendant, uh, the right to attend important hearings, um, the, the right to be treated with fairness, Right, the right to meaningfully confer with a prosecutor, just basic rights, you know, anything that seems like you shouldn't even need a law for this, but there, there is, um, you know, we have to have a law that says you have to treat crime victims with fairness and integrity and respect. People but, still don't follow it. Exactly. Well, I mean, this is like ex exhibit A, right? So, um, so I looked at this and I thought, okay, well, look, I have, I have an act here. It seems right on point. I can't believe anybody has to invoke it. I started looking for case law all, all over the country. There's none, literally zero. I'm like, okay, so what should I do here? I'm just going to create a pleading, petition for enforcement of crime victims' rights. It says I can invoke the jurisdiction of the uh, you know, local federal court. So I'll just do that. And I write this petition and I, I take it to the courthouse. I hand deliver it to the courthouse, which is like a funny moment. It's super self-deprecating because <laughs> it's like ridiculous. I had never... I never practiced in federal court at the time. I was a young lawyer. Well, any young lawyers now know that you don't do anything unless it's on the internet. So this yeah. is dating broad a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. for, sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. And I showed up in a suit, but I knew that it was important. And I knew something was happening right then. Wait, like, was there an active case? Or no, you're just, no, you're just filing a motion. You're just, just filing a motion. There's nothing. Look, the on C no case. The CVRA case. Did you have a talk? He learned about the Crime Victims Rights Act three days before. And was like, if I'm going to do something for Courtney, I'm going to figure out what this act is. And I'm going to enforce her rights. I literally wrote Petition for Enforcement of Crime Victims Rights Act. That, that was the title of the Did first. Did you have a docket? Number. No, no, no. <laughs> that, the first pleading in the CVRA case that we filed, which is Jane Doe, versus United States Wait, of America. Wait, my color will happen when you get to the courthouse. I will. I will. The first, it's like Jane Doe versus United States of America, I titled it. My, my paralegal at the time was like, you're just suing the United States of America? I was like, it seems like I have to, right? I mean, that's who the government is, right? Yes. So, so it's like, uh, we end up getting a case number 08-80736, which I know because I'm still litigating it right now, 13 years later. But, you know, baby lawyer, I'm, uh, I, I say to my paralegal, like, okay, give me the documents. I'm going to go hand deliver it to the federal courthouse and get a hearing because something's about to happen, like emergency basis. 
So I go in, I ask, you know, where's the clerk's office? They tell me, I've never been there before. Hand it in to the lady behind the counter. She says, okay. And I'm like, no, not okay. Like, are the judges in? And she's like, right. no, but it's it's an emergency. And she's like, let me go talk to my boss. So she, she's kind of snickering. And she walks back to her boss. She comes back and she says, Listen, I just talked to him. He's never seen a pleading like this before, <laughs> but- um, He doesn't even say emergency on it. <laughs> no, so she's telling me that. She, she, says, um, she says, wait, you know, you want a hearing like that, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not even an emergency. I'm like, oh, no, it is an emergency. She's like, it doesn't even say that. I'm like, give it back then. So I give it back. I take this pen from her and walk over to this like little counter. I write, handwrite the word emergency, all caps. All caps, underline. Literally hand it back. So Judge Mara got it. That day, he entered an order requiring the government to respond to it, requiring us to reply in a day. And then by Friday, I had a hearing. So within four days of handing that in, we had a hearing. And, and so that was on July, I think, 11th. But did they tell you right away that the plea had already happened? Like, how did you find out about the plea? No, no, it's not, right. Okay, so so we go to court. So I so I call Courtney and, uh, and one of her friends, who was a, another mm-hmm. victim, and I pick them up and go to court that day. So we go into the federal courthouse to argue essentially that judge something is about to happen. I think that there's a, a federal a plea going on between the government and Jeffrey Epstein, and you should s- step in and make them adhere to the Crime Victims and Rights Act, which make them meaningfully confer with our clients before they enter a plea. That day we learned for the very first time when uh, the government's appellate lawyer takes the stand and says, First of all, they recognized the second victim as a victim. So it became Jane Doe's, Jane Doe's one and two versus the United States of America. And he says, um, look, you know, basically Brad is, had, is mistaken, even though I had been misled, not really mistaken, but he's mistaken. Something's not about to happen. Something already happened. So last September of 2007, we entered into a non-prosecution agreement with Jeffrey Epstein, essentially giving him immunity for all federal crimes so long as he would plead guilty in state court. They were tied together. And, and so the judge says, you know, Brad, what's the emergency now? Because I can't stop it. I said, yeah, but it's still wrong. Like, li- listen, what he, listen what he did. So I go on this whole spiel about what he did. Judge Maris sends us into the hallway. And so it's, it's me, Courtney, her friend, who's still a J. Doe, uh, two FBI agents who sat in the corner mad, not at us, mad at the U.S. Attorney's Office because the U.S. Attorney's Office have kept the FBI in the dark too. FBI continued to investigate the case while the U.S. Attorney's Office had worked this secret deal out. And it was crazy. And then the prosecutors essentially uh, groveling, like um, almost crying. I mean, like upset, uh, apologizing to us about what had happened saying like, look, it came, the orders came down way over Were they apologizing to Courtney and her friend? Or just, well, just like, to the legal thing or was it to the victims and no, like a recognition of what the victims were going through? It was to both. It was to both. It, it was to Courtney and, and, and to me. And look, from my, from my point of view, I could see, I could see their position. And I thought, hey, look, it, it's bad, the position that you're in. And so I, I understand we have to do something about this. Courtney was like, I don't, I don't buy none of this. I don't buy any of this. I mean, like, you're sorry for what? I mean, so you just screwed you me over. Me. Yeah, you, you lied to me. Now you're sorry you lied. Like, get out of my face. I mean, she was not having any of it, you know? This um, is a clear violation yeah, of well, everything. She, she was like, I don't even know the Crime Victims Rights Act. I just know, like, y'all are treating me like. But, but what were you thinking at that moment? Like, did you understand the Crime Victims Rights Act well enough to know what the consequences were for violating it? Did you have any idea what the remedy would be? Or you were just mad that what it was are happening to Courtney? Well, what so is that's, the remedy? So that's kind of funny. So I filed this 
I file this uh, case and go back to my office and I get a call from Paul Cassell. I didn't know Paul Cassell from like Adam's house cat, you know? And Paul Cassell is. Right. So I'm, I'm going to tell you. I, I, Former I federal judge. Yeah. So Paul Cassell, what, you know, he, he was, um, you know, he was uh, Justice Scalia's law clerk, number you know, graduated number one at Stanford Law. He became a federal judge for six years. He left the federal bench to represent crime victims, and then he teaches law school at the University of Utah. So he's a casual guy from Jacksonville, Brad Edwards. He's like, oh my God, Paul Cassell, former federal judge, is calling me. What did I do wrong? Is anything wrong with me? Okay. He calls me and says, hey, you just filed this case under the Crime and Rights Act. And I go, yeah. And he says, well, can I help you? And I said, no, I don't need any help. Uh, I, could, I could really help. And let me just tell you some of the things I've done. So he starts rallying out. I'm like, hmm. You sound qualified. <laughs> I got you <laughs> too. Yeah. And, and, he's, and he says, look, I think we need to start arguing this case that I argued out of the fifth DCA, which is the only case on this entire topic. And I was like, yes, we do. Well, while I'm not sure that this aspect of the case, that the, the advancement of victims' rights has received as much attention as other aspects because Jeffrey Epstein has somehow, you know, his persona has eclipsed the, the, the nuance and the importance of the case. Everybody's kind of lost sight of what we did here. But I think that because of that case, we've changed the way the Department of Justice works. We've uh, added provisions specifically into the Crime Victims' Rights Act already that have increased the rights of crime victims, which includes to confer with prosecutors before a non-prosecution agreement is entered, which didn't exist then, which is the loophole the government has used against us. Hey, wait, we didn't formally charge him, so we didn't have to treat them with fairness, which is absurd on its face. I mean, the fact that they're able, able with a straight face to make that argument should like make somebody throw up, you know? Right. But but that's what they've done. But I mean, we have done things with this case in my mind to make it very difficult for the next billionaire to get away with this level of unfair justice. It takes a little time, and I think with victims' rights, we've made huge steps, but sometimes making huge steps in the law, the applicability takes a little longer. I always hate to jump in and interrupt our guests, especially when we're in such a good part of the story, but that is all the time we have for today. But please don't worry, Brad and Brittany will join us next week to discuss more on this case. If you'd like to read more about Brad and Brittany, we're going to go ahead and drop their firm website into the show notes. We're also going to drop a link to their book, Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the Victims of Jeffrey Epstein, into the show notes. Thank you again so much for listening to another episode of Parallel Justice, and please make sure you join us this week for the wrap-up of Brad and Brittany's interview. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.